Why do you have so many children? Because uh, I like my wife. I like my cigar, too, but I take it out sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, we know that's fake, but it's the Marx Brothers Council Podcast. Welcome back, everyone. This is Bob Cassell coming to you from frosty Fairfield, Connecticut. As always, I'm joined by my two co-hosts. First of all, speaking to us from New York City, the dapper author of Give Me a Thrill, The Story of Alsatia Is, let's welcome Mr. Noah Diamond. Never heard of him. And joining us by Transatlantic Wire, the man who tried to get his sister to like the Marx Brothers by showing her at the circus, Mr. (laughs) Matthew Conium. Hello, and my business card has nothing on it. Now, before we get started, we want to send a special shout-out and get well wishes to uh, our friend Eddie Deason. Eddie, uh, we're looking forward to seeing you back on the Facebook group real soon, and we're looking forward to seeing you back on the internet and in the movies and on TV and all that good stuff. Uh, Get well soon, Eddie. We're thinking of you. Yes. Now, uh, we did something a few months ago when I was hosting, and I was hoping for it to become a regular thing, but to be honest, uh, we've totally forgotten, so... (laughs) Let's, let's try it again. Um, we're going to go around the room and talk about our latest and greatest Marx revelations, uh, things that we've discovered or thought about since the last time we've spoken. Um, Noah, let's start with you. Well, I have a Marx revelation. It's really a line of thought, and it's about sex. Yeah. Our friend Nick Santamaria recently posted this in the Marx Brothers Council Facebook group. Uh, do you guys know about the Marx Brothers Council Facebook group? No. Yeah, it's a complete waste of time. Uh, Anyway, this is what Nick posted. He posted, I just read in the new book, Rediscovering Roscoe Arbuckle, that the proprietress of that famous brothel in which the women looked like the famous movie stars of the day said that Groucho Marx was her best paying customer. Uh, This really stuck in my mind. I looked into it a bit. This book about Fatty Arbuckle uh, is by Steve Massa, noted uh, author of numerous uh, film books, and it's published by our friends at Bear Manor Media. Now, this reference to this brothel, uh, I haven't looked into this deeply enough to tell you for certain that I think it's all true, but it is written about in numerous sources. This was a brothel supposedly called Maze that was run by Billy Bennett, who had been a comic supporting actress of the silent era. And starting uh, in the early 1930s was apparently given this position as the madam of an MGM studio bordello, where the prostitutes resembled and went to great lengths to (laughs) resemble uh, famous uh, starlets of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, except for Catherine Hepburn and Greta Garbo, who were never to be impersonated by prostitutes at Maze. <laughs> um, anyway, this Garson Kanan wrote about this place in his book, Hollywood. Mickey Rooney uh, has talked about it. Uh, Mickey Rooney has said that Groucho took him there for the first time and, and that he went there with Groucho on multiple occasions. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll tell you one thing. This brings a whole new meaning to the title, An Evening with Groucho. there's also a connection um a biographer named richard lertzman um who wrote about mickey rooney he cites both irving brecker and arthur marx as sources for information about may's Hmm. brothel my initial reaction to the whole thing was like yeah 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 and he ad-libbed entire movies while dropping acid with his best friend alice cooper (laughs) But the more I think about it, the more I sort of start to believe it. Um, And it made me think about Groucho's um, relationship with sex and women. It is certainly true that he was consistently confounded in the attempts to have happy marriages and, and, you know, healthy relationships with women. His early sexual experiences and formative sexual experiences, as we know, were largely with prostitutes or similarly transactional encounters with hotel chambermaids and so forth. Um, And since this was this kind of amenity being offered by MGM to its male stars, uh, if we believe this to be true, uh, it does make sense that this would be a kind of safe, built-into-the-system way for Groucho to get you know, sexual satisfaction. Um, And when I think about him personally as a man, um, the thing that I feel maybe saddest 
for Groucho about um, is his problem relating to women. And, um, you know, if he, if he had been a personal friend, the thing I would have wished for him the most is that he could have really had a life partner, the kind of um, equal and affectionate partnership that his friends, the Sheikmans had. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that's what maybe was most missing and maybe was the source of um, a, a great deal of his sadness. He, he didn't consider himself the most sexually capable guy. I, I'm an ardent lover, but an ineffectual one, I think he said on at least one occasion. Um, and uh, so Nick's post led me to uh, to these ruminations about uh, Groucho personally. So all this nonsense about Thalberg promising them uh, a better career is just <laughs> a cover? <laughs> of course, you know this means whore. <laughs> Well, I, you know, it's funny. I, I wonder too about the what happens when you become a recognizable, you know, icon, um, even without the mustache at this point. Um, if Groucho was in the practice of seeking the services of prostitutes, that must have gotten harder for him uh, in this period. Why hasn't there been a movie made about this? Even disguising the uh, the, the real personalities and names. Why hasn't this been done? Apparently, L.A. Confidential, which I have to confess I haven't seen, but in reading about this, apparently L.A. Confidential does include a fictionalized version of it. Mavis does, Mandela. yes, yeah. Hmm. Uh, it's good. It's a good film, actually. It's worth seeing. Yeah, like you, I was sort of ruminating at length on this. Um, I mean, I can certainly understand. I would certainly believe him being lonely enough and sort of sorry for himself enough and sexually frustrated enough to. To uh, especially as you say, in light of his background, where when it, it was something that was just a, a fact of life, um, to, to to resort to that on occasions, I suspect you know between marriages rather than rather than during. But I don't know. There's just something about him that makes it a bit of a surprise. Even so, there's, he just seems, as as you said, Noah, he just seems to have a, an ineffectual quality to him. I could imagine him not being able to, you know, as it were, rise to the occasion. Hey, this is a family <laughs> show. Keep it clean, Matthew. It certainly gets into areas of armchair psychoanalysis that, you know, it may be uh, unwise. But I, I wonder if, you know, if he did have this doubt in his ability to perform sexually, um, you know, maybe that had to do with the the not quite happy and healthy relationships he had with women um, and and the fact that his early sexual experiences were transactional leads me to theorize that, you know, maybe that was, maybe those were the conditions under which he could do it and was comfortable. Yeah. I mean, also a man in his position, um, you would think would be fairly, uh, would have fairly little difficulty getting just a casual girlfriend um, there's certainly hints mm-hmm. um, of, of him trying to get jobs in plays for, for girls he's smitten with and things. Um, and, you know, bearing in mind his, his reluctance to, to part with money as well, his famous uh, cheap yeah, That's news. true. <laughs> you know, when you first mentioned this, I found that really hard to believe in that I would think Chico would have been the one who would most frequent such a thing. But the, as more I started to think about it, I realized that Chico probably got his for free. Exactly. Yeah, from, yeah. Chico didn't yeah. have to. And from the original ladies, not the, <laughs> not the impersonators. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Groucho uh, would not have had Chico's uh, ease of access that way. And and I don't know. It something about it does ring true for me. I, you know, he said um, that what he really was looking for was a woman who looked like Marilyn Monroe and talked like George S. Kaufman. <laughs> um, and that was the elusive uh, thing he never found. But, you know, what's he really saying there? He's looking for a smart, attractive woman, you know, <laughs> someone witty and with a sense of humor and intelligent and well-read and everything, as well as beautiful and, and physically attractive. You know, it's not like this doesn't exist. Um, he was, I think, terrified of of women who might have actually been his equal in those areas. Yes, I think uh, He so. consistently didn't choose them. Hmm. Uh, anyway, that's what I've been thinking about. Ah, that's a good one. And that sort of ties in a little bit to uh, what we're going to be talking about later on. Yes, it does. So for my revelation, I have something that's not necessarily new, 
as I think we've talked about it before, but I do have a few new thoughts. Um, to backtrack, uh, as most of us Marx fans know, the only existing prints of A Night at the Opera contain a number of uh, cuts that were done to hide the fact that the first part of the film takes place in Italy and to get rid of any direct references that any of the characters are actually Italian, uh, including Chico. Now, for a long time, the common assumption was that these edits were done during World War II, uh, when Italy was allied with the uh, Axis powers. Now, that wasn't an unreasonable thought, um, and we really had no reason to doubt it. But um, one of the first to question this was our own Matthew Conium, who postulated in his book a few years ago that the cuts might have been done earlier. Uh, and now we have solid proof that Matthew was exactly right. Yep. Um, a bunch of papers related to both uh, Night at the Opera and A Day at the Races have recently been made available online. And these include a correspondence between MGM and the Hayes office dating back to when the film was in uh, pre-production. Uh, there was a constant back and forth as MGM sent pages of the script to the Hayes office as it was being written, and they would get notes back. Um, even after the films were finished and released, the office sent MGM more requests for cuts to suit individual states and cities and uh, even countries. Uh, some countries had issues with scenes like Driftwood laying down on the daybed in Mrs. Claypool's room. Um, one country even had a problem with Harpo making a pancake and cigar sandwich. <laughs> These letters basically end in 1936, about a year after the film was released. Uh, however, there are two more letters that appear a couple of years later, in 1938. The first refers to a complaint by the Italian government that A Night at the Opera actually made fun of Italian people. And the second, dated August 3rd, 1938, says simply that cuts were made for the Italian release to remove any inference that the characters were Italian. So there you have it. Um, now, of all the cuts detailed in these papers, it was only this last set that was done to MGM's Master Negative. All the other cuts were done on a local level or to duplicates of the film or whatever, because none of those other cuts uh, are, are in today's version. So the obvious question is why? Why were these last set of cuts done to the master negative? Well, I've come up with two possibilities. See whether you agree with me. Um, the first was simple convenience. The movie was two years old. It was out of circulation. And perhaps there weren't any other negatives available. Why go to the expense of making a new negative when we had this one sitting here just uh, collecting dust? Second, and I think this is the more likely version, it was done to make the Italians happy. MGM decided that this would be the default version of the film going forward. Uh, they did not expect the film to have a long shelf life, and even if it was re-released, who would even notice? So perhaps that's all there was to it. Um, one more thing to point out is that these cuts were done after Irving Thalberg had passed away. Uh, this is important because he was not around to protect his baby. And perhaps if he had been around, things might have gone differently. So that's what I've been wasting my time thinking about. I just want to say that it was fascinating to see the actual documents that you've posted in the council group. Yeah, those were very cool. I'll, I'll tell you what, we're going to post the link to those, uh, the papers to both A Night at the Opera and A Day at the Races. Uh, we'll post it on our blog site. So please take a look. Uh, you'll get a lot of insight as to what was done with these films before and after uh, production. Yeah, it's interesting stuff. And mine is a, a follow-on from that because, as you said, um, Bob, uh, in my book, it's only uh, put forward as a theory. Uh, so I speculate fairly loosely on, on what it might be. Now that we've got some actual proof of it, I've been looking a, a bit more into uh italy's relationship to to uh to imported films at the time to see if there was anything specific uh and i've and i've come up with a couple of interesting things that do address um the, the questions you've asked basically italy had a very very um heightened relationship to, to imported films they had to import films because cinema going was a was a massive um Italian pastime. There wasn't a lot of domestic production, uh, certainly not enough to to satisfy the the need. So they had to import American films. As a result, they censored American films far less strictly than they censored their own films. And a good example there is is gangster movies. Uh, there were no Italian gangster movies. They were completely banned, homegrown gangster movies, because. 
uh, officially uh, that kind of criminality didn't exist in Italy. It was a negative presentation of Italy. American gangster films were fine because it was just showing the kind of criminality that exists in America. So that wasn't a problem. However, Scarface and Little Caesar were both banned mm -hmm. because the gangsters were seen to be of Italian origin. So American imports with an Italian element were uh, very, very strictly monitored. And the, the classic example of this, which I've, which I've discovered, is, is the 1938 film The Adventures of Marco Polo, which, as you can imagine, is an entirely uh, celebratory uh, account of, of Marco Polo's voyages. But they simply objected to the fact that Marco Polo was being played by Gary Cooper. That in, uh, that in itself was felt to be disrespectful. So what they did was they completely changed his character in the dubbing. They made him someone else and they released the film under the title A Scotsman in the Court of the Great Khan. Now, <laughs> that in itself raises an interesting point because Italy was the only country, uh, non-English speaking country, that imported uh, English speaking movies, but insisted by law, by an actual law, that they couldn't be subtitled they had to be dubbed. So that raises uh, a slightly nagging question. Well, hang on then. Why didn't they just redub A Night at the Opera to remove all references to Italy? Um, and there, I think, we touch on what I, what I think may well be uh, the answer to this and also to the, uh, the answer to why they did it on their on the sort of official master negative rather than just on an export negative, which is the Italian-American market which was very, very big, um, and also which had been kind of primed to be as sensitive to these things as Italy itself was. Mussolini was intent mm -hmm. on doing culturally what Hitler was intent on doing physically, which is to kind of reunite uh, the race wherever, wherever they had, had, uh, had moved to. And in a 1933 American newsreel compilation film called Mussolini Speaks, which played in Italian-American cinemas. Um, there's footage of Mussolini very overtly saying, if you are of Italian origin, wherever you live, you are an Italian. So it was a very uh, sensitive issue at that time. And I do mention in my book one um, cinema exhibitor in New Jersey who tried to claim back money from United Artists because he said it was impossible for him to show the film The Affairs of Cellini without offending his, his Italian audience. So I suspect it's a combination of Italy's own squeamishness and the Italian-American market that is, is the answer here. Yeah, as I was looking into this, I saw that Italy and Germany were both very conscious of how they were being portrayed on screen. Um, even with the rise of Hitler, uh, there really wasn't a big anti-Nazi or anti-Germany film until, believe it or not, the Three Stooges did You Nazi Spy in 1940. It's worth noting that with uh, Mussolini Speaks, we don't know how much of that was written by Roland Barber. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> very Is true, that the very footage? True. Is that the Mussolini footage with Zelig sitting next to him? <laughs> so let's move on to the reason we're all here. You know, it's funny when we're preparing to do an episode, this has happened a few times recently, just out of the blue, the subject that we're going to talk about comes up on, on the Facebook group. Um, this week, uh, it happened with uh, Steve Burstein. Uh, he was the amazing Kreskin and anticipated what we're going to talk about. You know, in 1934, the Marx Brothers didn't make a film. They didn't appear on stage. As a team, they made absolutely no public appearances. In fact, uh, to the public, the most notable thing the Marxists did in 1934 was lose one of their members. Uh, so you might be asking, why are we doing a podcast about it? Well, because 1934 is the year everything changed for the Marxists, externally and internally. Um, film comedy and the movie business in general was evolving quickly. And once Duck Soup was finished in late 1933, the Marxists were uncertain as to what to do next. Uh, they weren't sure they wanted to continue at Paramount. They weren't sure even that they wanted to continue in the movie business at all. And the fact that 
Duck Soup, while not necessarily a flop, wasn't really a huge hit. Uh, the fact that it got mixed responses didn't really uh, clarify things for them. So they waited to see what would come next. Um, on January 1st, 1934, LA Times columnist Edward Showard wrote this about the state of the Marxist uh, career. Let me get this. Thing. Let me read this. Okay. Every indication points to the Marx Brothers being through with the movies for the time being. They played the game for what it was worth, but the screen is relentless in its extractions on comedians. It's their duty to be funnier in each succeeding picture, and that isn't anything easy. Duck Soup was scarcely a fade-out or anything like that. But the same tricks can't be worked over and over again. Groucho Marx has dropped the word in New York that they finished up for the time being. It looks like a stage show, and then maybe back to Paramount when they are on the popular crest once again. So, Matthew, could you elaborate on where exactly the Marxists stood with Paramount after Duck Soup? Yeah, I mean, the the kind of understanding that, that most people have had until fairly recently was, was that they were dropped because Duck Soup was a big flop. Um, obviously, we now know that, that that's not the case at all. We also know an awful lot more than we did about just what a, a fractious uh, relationship they had with Paramount during the making of Duck Soup, where they in actual fact walked off the production um, and tried to start their own independent company and, and uh, that, that failed and they they kind of slinked back with their tails between their legs and finished the movie. But they were they were um, chasing Paramount through the courts for, for unpaid um, money on previous movies. And then uh, in this slightly soured atmosphere, Duck Soup is released, um, and it's it's far from a flop. It's it's one of the years one of the year's more successful films, but it's not a successful year. So compared to their previous movies, it hasn't done as well. It cost a bit more. There's some very elaborate sets and lots of uh, extras milling about and things. So so in in those very specific terms, it's it's a disappointment, but it's it's far from a flop. Um, they did negotiate with the studio for a new contract. Um, they didn't come to an agreement and they, they amicably parted, parted ways. I suspect as always, when these things happen, um, Groucho was the one putting up least of a fight. Um, I think already he was thinking, uh, okay, this is a good natural point to break off and, and try something something different um again i don't think and the studio in itself was in an upheaval right exactly was uh, facing bankruptcy and and uh, laying off left right and center so i think groucho thought you know here's a good here's a, a god-given opportunity to take a break and remind people that yes we can appear together but we are also uh, individual performers which is something that he never ceased to to view himself as um and and so let's make that break and and see what happens and like before they made duck soup before uh they settled their difficulties there there was talk of them going back on stage now you really get the impression that over the years that the marxists really were uncomfortable filming something that they didn't have uh, experience with in front of a live audience. So it seemed as if their thought was do a show and eventually had that be made into a film. Why do you think those plans never came to fruition though, with, with Sam Harris in New York? I think they must have had reasons for being either intimidated about returning to the stage, either by the possibility of failure or by the sheer amount of work. Um, and the amount of effort involved in appearing every night, even after a play opens, because they talked about it at every fork in the road, uh, but they never quite did it. Although you could say that with the Night of the Opera pre-filming tour, mm -hmm. it, in a way, it is kind of what they wound up doing. And since they were testing material, they wouldn't have the stress of having to be great every night. In June of 1934, um, in J.D.'s column, uh, he quotes P.G. Wodehouse saying uh, that he's had an offer from Hecht and MacArthur to collaborate on a play for the Marx Brothers. This is right around the same time Groucho was appearing in Hecht and MacArthur's 20th Century in Maine. Um, and it seems like this was one of numerous possible theatrical collaborations that didn't wind up happening. Also, the 1934 Broadway season, you know, <laughs> could have used the Marx Brothers. This was the year of Anything Goes, um, Kaufman and Hart's Merrily We Roll Along, which fictionalized 
people like Dorothy Parker. And in addition to the Ziegfeld Follies, which Groucho in particular was always threatening to appear in, but never did, with Eve Arden and Fanny Bryce. It's actually sort of hard to pin down if they really did want to go back on the stage or if it was just a negotiating point. Uh, or perhaps maybe it was just something to tell the press uh, to get them off their backs since they didn't have anything uh, pending at the moment. I mean, as always, with these accounts of live performances, I mean, the hardest thing is sorting out the real ones from the spurious ones. I mean, it seems that whenever they're at a loose end, they start saying they're going to be appearing in plays about this, that and the other. And there's there's quite a few around this time. Groucho talks about the Marx Brothers at Palm Springs being being one. And then there's a um I can't immediately see where I've clipped this from, but there's a one cutting that says, When the public next beholds Groucho and the other three Marx Brothers, it will be in a production called The Sleeping Beauty, and Groucho will be in the character of a magician and hypnotist. The story, he says, is built around Dillinger and a bank robbery. It will be a stage production <laughs> opening on Broadway in November. So he's even he's even put a date on it. Uh, so it's a magician, hypnotist, Dillinger style Broadway show called The Sleeping Beauty. So it's very, very hard to know what to believe and what not to believe. I tell you, if they had appeared on Broadway in the 1930s, the odds would be much, much higher of having some uh, film footage of them performing live. Mm -hmm. uh, numerous Broadway shows from the 30s do exist, at least on silent film, um, for example, in the Ray Knight collection at, at Miles Kruger's uh, Institute of the American Musical. You know, he's got a lot of very precious silent footage from Broadway productions. And a lot of what we know about Broadway in the 30s, we know from those films. So it's one reason to regret that they didn't make it back to the stage. And Harpo had gone to Russia. When was that? Was that late 33 or early? Late 34? 33, yeah. Okay, he'd come back. And actually in early... Uh, in the spring of 1934, Chico and Groucho spent a couple of months in New York doing a radio show, and it, it seemed that they were going to try and get the stage show together at the same time, but both fell apart pretty quickly. That was a CBS show where Groucho was um, supposed to play a character named Ulysses S. Drivel, <laughs> eagle-eyed newshound, and Chico as his trusty assistant, Pinelli. Are there any recordings of that? Um, not that I know of. I'm getting this from Simon Luvish. Is he over there? Yeah, he's right here. Hey, Simon. <laughs> How you doing? <laughs> okay, so in the middle of all this, Zeppo decides to pick up and, and leave. He writes a letter to Groucho, which has been excerpted in many books. He says, I'm sick and tired of being the stooge. You know that anyone else would have done just as well as I in the act. Uh, when the chance came for me to get into business, I jumped at it. I've only stayed in the act until now because I know you wanted me to, but I am sure that you understand why I've joined Frank Orsatti and his theatrical agency, Love Zeppo. Now, it, first of all, it's interesting that uh, Groucho would release this letter publicly. I don't I've always yes. found that interesting. It seemed like it was written in confidence. I wonder if he had any thoughts about Groucho letting it out. There's so much speculation about what the straw was that broke the camel's back when he decided to leave. It, it seems like it had been in the works for several months, if not several years. So it couldn't have been too big a surprise. I think so, yeah. I mean, they're announcing it from about 1929 onwards that he's he's likely to go. He's tried writing screenplays around 1930. Um, so, you know, it's obviously uh, something that he wanted to get out of if, if he could. I think the, 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 the significance of this, of this moment above any other, and it's important to remember, as you say, that this is before the signing to MGM. It wasn't that he, that he said then, look, I I'm not going to do this anymore. Uh, he did it before then. It's because they were temporarily disbanded and all, all four of them were, were doing different things. So I think it was, it was mm -hmm. only natural given that he had made a success or was looking to make a success of being an agent. You know, why the hell would he want to come back when they decided to a, a year or so later? He'd already moved on. Another big thing that has changed for the Marx Brothers at this point in their experience is, you know, halfway through 1933, they become orphans. Uh, Frenchie dies uh, in May, and uh, Minnie had died in 1929, just after the film premiere of Coconuts. And I think Zeppo's discontent was, you know, he was able to act on it now that there were no parents left. There was no... Um, family um, imperative to keep the four Marx Brothers name going. 
I think this had a lot to do with Zeppo deciding, you know what, it's up to me now. I don't have to keep uh, adhering to the family plan so closely. You know, there's no real reason he couldn't have remained in the act, even while pursuing something else. So, you know, think about it. They made one film a year, and when you consider how small his parts were, uh, being a Marx brother couldn't have taken up more than, what, three weeks of his year? <laughs> That's true, yeah. Yeah, that doesn't seem to be the reason, though, right? It was more that he he could no longer tolerate that his name had become a synonym for being superfluous and uh, ineffective. He never made an attempt to change it. You would think he would be like, I don't want to be associated with that anymore. Call me Herbert. Simple Marx doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Something else as well that occurred to me is bearing in mind the way that Monkey Business and Horse Feathers were written by a sort of a committee of writers all adding bits and firing and, and it all being assembled from the input of lots of different people. Bearing in mind that he was writing comedy screenplays as early as 1930, I think. Um, it's a surprise that he, that he didn't try and get in on the writing. I would have thought maybe he might have said, hey, why can't I sit in on, the, on these writing sessions and throw in a few jokes and, and, and be a Marx brother that way, in a way that would obviously be more fulfilling to him. But either he never thought of doing that or... or Do was, we know that he didn't? Well, he certainly didn't officially, you know, which is what would be, would right. be the, largely the point of it. But uh, I, I wonder if he did suggest it and was told, no, you can't do that. I don't know. <laughs> if Zeppo's unhappiness stemmed from the size of his roles, it's sort of ironic that he chose this very moment to leave because Thalberg, with his linear storytelling and character development and everything, most certainly would have found something more meaty for Zepp to do, right? Yeah, he would have had a subplot for sure, yeah, because they had scenario writers as well as script writers, as well as right. gag writers who were paid to do a job. So if he was going to be in it, they would have given him something to do. Yes, no question. It wouldn't have been the Alan Jones part, but it would have been something. Perhaps he would have been cast as the bridge between the brothers and the main characters the way they ended up using uh, Chico in the MGM films. Uh, maybe Zepp would have been Ricardo's friend and manager. Or the driver at the Standish Sanitarium, or yeah, who knows, maybe yeah. the contract scene would have been Groucho and Zeppo. <laughs> Another thing that was interesting when Zeppo left, a uh, couple things actually, even though it was in variety in late March and early April, how many people either didn't believe it or totally forgot about it because by late summer and in the fall, when the brothers were negotiating they were still being referred to as the four marx brothers yeah and hedda hopper says explicitly says that zeppo will be in opera yeah the four marx brothers are going to mgm it seems that regardless of what zeppo brought to the team studios were apparently wary of a three-member uh marx brothers um the new head of paramount emmanuel Cohn, was still talking to the brothers into the summer of 1934 he was worried that three brothers as opposed to four might be perceived as a lesser team <laughs> <laughs> the public immediately demanded to know which three. <laughs> so he was four. Yeah. So he wanted four brothers. And of course, that sparked some speculation in some publications that Gummo might uh, come back to the team. There was no real uh, uh, meat behind this, but it was some idle speculation. And that was never going to happen. <laughs> so, anyhow, as the year uh, progressed, nothing was really happening. Uh, none of these plans were coming to fruition. So to clear his head, Groucho actually left the wheeling and dealing the Chico and took off for Maine, where he took a role in, on stage in a drama. Yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, according to to the story, it was something that Groucho sort of wandered into very casually. And when I uh, dug deeper, expecting to, to find that disproved, um, everything did seem to point to it, that it was a very, very sort of casual thing that just the opportunity arose and, and he leapt in and, and took it. But it was certainly a very, very important uh, decision uh, in, in terms of his career. Um, as we know, Harpo had been in Russia. Zeppo was, was now an agent. Chico, I think Groucho says uh, Chico has his private enterprise or something like that, which I, which I suppose means was was basically doing nothing but uh yeah he got this opportunity to appear in a play in a in a little theater in maine he apparently himself suggested uh 20th century 
by all accounts, uh, it was a, a, a huge success for him. Uh, his signing immediately turned it from a from a tiny little venture into something that everybody was taking notice of. Everyone turned up for the first night. Kaufman was there. Amelia Earhart was there. Harper was there. And according to all the reviews, uh, he acquitted himself admirably and made a, a complete success of doing what he'd would have given his left arm to do, I think, between 1941 and 1947, which is appear in mm-hmm. a totally separate production uh, without his moustache, without his tricks, without his brothers, and with complete success. So I think he was riding on such a high with that. Uh, and he was also, incidentally, at this time with um, Norman Krasner starting on the screenplay, which was then called Grand Passion, which became... The King and the Chorus Girl, which was made in 1937, they were hard at work on that. So I think in his mind, the gamble had paid off and he'd sort of proved to himself that any time he wanted, he could leave the act uh, and and be more than a success on his own. As we know, in 1941, uh, he, was, he was quite rudely disabused of that. But in 1934, mm. he must have been absolutely uh, confident. And so I think, ironically, his return to the Marx Brothers in 1935 was in part uh, because he had been emboldened by the success of 1934. And he thought, right, I know I can do it now, so I don't need to worry. So here's this uh, here's this offer to do a, a, a very lucrative new Marx Brothers film. I can do that with a, with a happy heart because I know I can I can make it on my own. I've proved it. 20th century was a, a good choice for him. He uh, It's interesting that he chose it for himself. The character that he played um, is a sort of uh, parody of David Belasco, an egomaniacal uh, Broadway producer. And the whole play takes place on a, a, a train car. Uh, and this is a character who has, you know, a, a certain measure of Groucho-like um, sardonic wit. He's a very mercurial character. And of, of course, the play is packed with funny lines. Uh, but it's also a somewhat more like his role in Room Service, a somewhat more human um, character than we're used to seeing Groucho play. When 20th Century was last seen on Broadway in 2004, uh, Alec Baldwin played the role that Groucho took in Maine. And another another sort of indication of how um, comfortable he was doing that was that, that um, it became very much a sort of a family venture. Ruth, his wife Ruth, actually had a had a had a role in it, the part that uh, Billy Seward plays in the film. Uh, Anita, uh, she was actually on stage. Um, Miriam would come on as well often during the intervals uh, and recite for the audience. Um, and also Groucho, according to Luella Parsons, um, was confident enough to, to add some sort of comic business to it as well. Uh, Groucho said, I found the public wanted to laugh at me anyway and intended to do it. So I gave them something to laugh at. So it all points to a very, very comfortable experience for him. And I think this is reflected in, um, an interview quote he gave uh, while he was while he was doing it, in which he was asked about the stage as opposed to to movies, uh, and he said the stage is not dead, as some seem to believe. The public are not going to be satisfied with nothing but moving pictures. Pictures, of course, are here to stay, but there is room for both. I predict a chain of little theatres all over the country within a very few years. I do not mean the arty sort but smaller theatres, which the smaller towns can afford to support. The trend towards the stage is evident in New York. There have been more hits on Broadway the past season than in five years before that. So I think it, I think it's fair to say that he, Groucho at least, um, was very much thinking that maybe move, we've done movies now. Uh, we could come back to them mm. later on, but for now, we've tried that, we've done it. We've been a success, uh, but where we where we belong is on the stage. 
It's interesting that we, uh, to consider their age at this point, you know, I mean, it, it's been 10 years since I'll say she is. Um, we, we always talk about how in the coconuts, which is our youngest view of them on film, they're really not particularly young. Uh, Groucho's 39, Harpo and Chick are in their early forties. Well, now in 1934, um, they're all pushing 50, right? Chico is 47, I think. Um, and yes, you would, you would think it would make a certain amount of sense that they would feel some urge to slow down. Um, but in fact, they speed up because the opera tour is the most uh, exhausting live performance schedule they've had in a very long time at this point. It's only a month. They're only it's not a long tour, yeah. But there is something about um, uh, their age at this point. I, I, I mean, it's it's funny to see as as Groucho is growing into the curmudgeonly old man he's always been at heart. And Harpo and Chico are beginning to just, it's the very beginning of them slightly outgrowing their, you know, very boyish and puckish stage and screen characters. You know, you can see that the interests, even just the professional comedy interests of the three major Marx Brothers are just not as aligned as they were before. And they're they're growing more disparate. Yeah, and it's obvious that the stage tours were to some extent done to satisfy a desire on their part it's always sold to us as a very kind of business-like logical thing where they said we need to use a live audience to time the jokes to get the rhythm right um etc etc but it's obviously not true because they've just made three films uh, very, very effectively and very successfully, where they didn't have that, so they they should know by mm-hmm. now that they that they in fact don't need that. But I suspect that particularly on on Groucho's part, but possibly on all their parts, there is also a, a very real desire to get to get back in front of a live crowd because I'm sure they did love it. Now that, of course, brings us to the legendary encounter of Chico with Irving Thalberg at, at a bridge game, which everyone assumes was a, a chance uh, meeting. But I've come across some info that Sam Goldwyn, who is a friend of Harpo, suggested to him that Thalberg was interested in talking to them. So it might not have been the spontaneous moment everyone thinks. Or it could have been a chance meeting at that brothel. <laughs> <laughs> they, could, they could have caught Thalberg literally with his pants down and, and made him an offer he couldn't refuse. <laughs> Hey, those aren't walnuts. <laughs> uh, it's interesting to see how things had changed by this point. Uh, when Duck Soup was done, the brothers were, you know, so determined to take control of their career and their act. And here they are about a year later, just totally turning over the keys to uh, Thalberg, who knows what he was going to do with them. So, Yeah, I think it's, it, it's inevitable that they're going to be flattered by, by Thalberg's tension and by MGM's uh, status. So I, I think, you know, obviously Chico doesn't really care about, about what they're doing as long as it's, it's, it's well paid and it's, and it's a success. He's not really going to be bothered at all. Uh, Groucho, I think is going to be less bothered here than, than at any other time for the reasons I, I, I was just saying that he, he's no longer really, um, his heart is no longer really in the act. Um, so he, it's just like another assignment for him. Harpo, again, I think as much as Chico would be impressed by the, by the prestige of MGM. So I think once they got over the initial sort of annoyance that, that here was this bloke telling them what, what was good and what was bad about what they did. Um, I think it was inevitable really that, that they would, they would succumb to his confidence and to his, um, track record. I think like so much about this period, um, it does have something to do with mourning Minnie and honoring her memory or still feeling enthralled to her directives. All through their early career and, and Minnie's influence on them, there was always this um, directive about class. She always wanted the act to be classy. You know, they had this tendency to be roughhouse comedians and very low comedy uh, ran through their veins. And 
it was at Minnie's behest that they kept the act sort of uh, in firmly mainstream entertainment. And I think, you know, Minnie would have been very pleased with Thalberg's interest in them. It established them as a classier brand than they had ever been before, uh, with the possible exception of, at, at the moment, Coconuts opened on Broadway um, when they were really sort of traveling first class. Um, and I think their um, willingness to go along with Thalberg had uh, at least something to do with um, Minnie's influence on them. Yeah, and you have to imagine that at some point during the conversation, it came up how the brothers wanted to go back on stage and perfect the uh, new material. So it most likely put a bug in Thalberg's ear, which made him come up with the uh, road tour idea. He kind of knew what they needed. Yeah. There's also something about obsolescence and the being terrified of obsolescence. And I think all, all performers have some of this, but the performers of the Marx Brothers generation, I think, had it in spades because within the time frame of their professional careers, they had already seen two entire art forms, vaudeville and silent movies, virtually disappear um and you know still ahead was the abandonment of of radio for television uh, but i think the idea that the hottest young producer in hollywood was interested in them at all was very reassuring to them in terms of their own uh, possible um becoming old-fashioned that's a very good point mm -hmm. yeah because there really was no such thing at, at that point it's very very hard to get your head around this now but there was really no such thing as film history there was only film memory uh, yeah. And what's that worth? Nothing. Right. Um, this, this idea that there would be years in, in the future, idiots like us who pour over these films and, and, and have instant access to them uh, was unimagined. So all that mattered was now. And, and here is the, you know, the, the Hollywood's most prestigious studio, not only making them an offer, but actually courting them, actually uh, offering inducements mm -hmm. Um, it's, it's, and there's no question they're going to go for that. Yeah. But the story about Chico and the bridge game is interesting, isn't it? Because there must be some truth in it. There's no other reason why it would have emerged. Um, and, and plus, of course, we have to reckon with the fact of that, that mysterious billing change where Chico goes up to second place. <laughs> that that can only be a thank you for services rendered. I can't think of any other reason why that would happen. So um, hmm. I, I think there must be some so, there must be something to that. And most of the stories around Night of the Opera, particularly Night of the Opera, is an especially fertile moment for 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 myths and and legends. But I think that one has to have something to it. So now we come to probably the most um, uh, subjective part of the discussion, and that would be the change in the brothers, you know, characters and basic act during this year and a half hiatus. There were just so many factors, it's hard to gauge exactly what percentage each of them played. Uh, you have the evolution of movie comedy, you know, moving away from the farcical stuff to a more realistic screwball tone of the mid-30s. There was the production code, which technically had been in effect since 1930, but under Joseph Green was now being more strictly enforced uh, starting in 1934. Yeah. And of course, the obvious move to the slick and glossy MGM, uh, particularly under Thalberg's thumb uh, and his plan to make them sympathetic and so forth. Uh, so while Kaufman and Riskin were back writing great, iconic Marx material, we were also getting scenes of Harpo being beaten up. Yeah, I mean, I doubt they wrote that that scene. As we know, screenwriting billing was very much a lottery. I mean, people had to literally uh, win court cases mm -hmm. to get any semblance of logic to it. So, so you know, huge numbers mm -hmm. of people actually did work on the film. Um, I'm sure that scene turned up pretty late and had nothing to do with Kaufman or Riskin. But it is indicative, yes, mm -hmm. of what were then subtle changes that would become wholesale changes. Interestingly, at the very beginning, like the birth of the Hayes Code um, is um, in 1927, uh, Will Hayes, who is the president of the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors Association, um, he invites executives from the major film studios to self-generate a list of uh, suggestions guidelines for going forward and making uh, clean, responsible films. And the executives responsible for that original list, which was known as the don'ts and be carefuls, uh, that becomes the Hayes Code, 
Um, those executives were E.A. Challen from Paramount, Saul Wurzel from Fox, and Irving Thalberg from MGM. Uh, Thalberg is one of the fathers of the Hayes Code. Yes, and it's it's important to remember, isn't it? Because we 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 talk about pre-code, but in a sense, that's that's a misnomer because um, the code existed during the pre-code period. The point was nobody really adhered to it or just paid it lip service. The significance of of when mm-hmm. the pre-code era becomes the code era is that that's when um, people actually did start obeying it. Uh, but it had always existed, so there was always, um, you know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a free for all. I mean, it's obvious if you look at a pre code movie um, that it's not it's not even remotely as free as a movie made today. But it's mm. but but they're films that kind of chance their arm a bit in a way that after nineteen thirty four becomes impossible. Well, obviously, some of Groucho's double entendres had to be tempered somewhat. I don't think he was affected by the code as much as Chico and particularly Harpo. Um, Harpo certainly lost his leering sexuality, and there was no more blonde chasing. And, you know, he even stopped giving the leg to people. Uh, Chico was no longer the proud criminal he had been at Paramount. Now he was a guy trying to get by with menial jobs and supplanted with an occasional scam on someone, uh, usually Groucho. So as I mentioned before, it's hard to tell how much of all this was code and how much was Thalberg related. It's difficult, isn't it? Because clowns have always had more license. I mean, going going right back to the to the dawn of comedy, uh, to you know, to the to the jester um, in 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 the royal court, they always had more license than anyone else because there was a kind of a balloon of 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 safety of unreality around the comedian. So Harpo and Chico, even in um, in an MGM film, can get away with vastly more than a character in an MGM drama might in terms of criminality, in terms of uh, sexuality, um, because because the, the clown has that unique license. But obviously, still there there have to be limits, and I think. Uh, some of the Paramount material um, would would have would have butted against those limits. As I talked about last month when discussing the coconuts, uh, when Chico and Harpo come in, they basically announce they're ready to rip people off and fill their suitcase. Uh, in Animal Crackers, Chico doesn't want to switch a painting unless it counts as stealing. And it goes on and on at Paramount. <laughs> yes. Now, by 1935, they really can't get away with anything anymore. Uh, they are captured on both the ship and in the opera house at the end of the film. There was no way their kind of anti-establishment uh, behavior was going to go unpunished anymore, or or their or their victim was deserving in some way. Um, yes, you know, so yes. it's it's all right to it's all right to fleece Groucho at the start of Go West, but it's not all right to to fleece that decrepit loon digging a pit because he's a nice guy. So it's no <laughs> strings attached. Uh-huh. There's something about the comedian's instinct to push the envelope and take chances and, and, you know, walk right up to the line um, that uh, all through the history of show business brushes up against the instincts of uh, producers and, and financers to, you know, be excessively careful. And in an atmosphere that's very restrictive, um, such as Hollywood under the Hayes Code, um, self-censorship, winds up being the most controlling factor, um, not necessarily on the part of the Marx Brothers themselves, but on the part of the studio and everyone else making decisions about these films. You know, in an atmosphere of censorship, you you are more likely to stop taking chances. Um, yeah. And as we've said, it's hard to really say how influential the Hayes Code is as far as the change of tone in the Marx Brothers' work between Paramount and MGM. But, uh, you know, the excessive um, uh, cropping of Italian references, for example, uh, it seems like everyone becomes much too careful about things. So, yes, I think the big difference between between Paramount and MGM is is the gloss, is the the vastly increased budgets, the subplots, the music, the, the, the photographic... Uh, style etc 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 i think the the difference in the actual nature of the material yes there obviously is a difference but i'm in the camp that says if they'd remained at paramount after the code you would still be talking about two bodies of work agreed 
but it's fun to speculate what they would have done had they stayed at Paramount. Um, I have a hunch they would have backtracked a bit from the extreme craziness of McCary and Duck Soup and gone back to a more relatable style and subject matter, perhaps back with Norman MacLeod, something like that. Yeah, re- real world, but but safe, yeah. And as we discussed earlier, it really would have been interesting to see how Thalberg would have handled Zeppo. You know, he might have surprised us. Perhaps he would have made him, uh, you know, Mrs. Claypool's son or something. You just never know. I think he still would have been essentially on on their team. I don't think they would ever have given him a role that was apart from them, even though in, in Paramount, you know, he, his characters should be apart from them for some reason, although he's not playing their brother. Um, he, 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 he sort of teams with them. So I don't think they would ever have given him a role that would have been uh, separate from what they're doing. But what I am certain of is You don't that think they would have made him uh, Gottlieb? No, no. I don't think he would have worked <laughs> for Gottlieb. I don't think he would have worked for Lasvari. I think he definitely would have been on, on side with them. <laughs> but I don't think Thalberg would have tolerated uh, such a pointless presence as he is in so much of, of Paramount. So I think we would yeah. have had an edict from Thalberg that said, use Zeppo, mm. give him something to do. And it wouldn't have been something funny, but it would have been a subplot, yeah. a, a, a comic subplot, yeah. I think. Well, one area for speculation that occurs to me is, you know, if they had gone back to the stage if what they had done after leaving paramount was uh go back to broadway and and do a musical there you know it seems likely that whatever they did on stage would have become a film yeah um and i wonder how that film would have been different from what they wound up doing at mgm well they obviously wouldn't have done the stage bound copy of the plays the way paramount did um i'm guessing they would have taken the comedy scenes and the bare bones of the plot and basically rebuilt it from scratch uh, into a real film. Along those lines, um, I imagine if Coconuts had not been made into a film yet uh, and MGM was was adapting it in 1935, it would bear very little resemblance to what uh, Paramount produced in 1929. Yeah, that would have been almost as um, uh, almost as different as the color TV version of Animal Crackers would have been if they had gotten yeah. around to that. Mm-hmm. I have another thing here. We might lose Matthew on this one. So <laughs> so if we hear a click, that's Matthew putting the podcast. I, I just started thinking about the uh, the uh, similarities between what Thalberg uh, did for the Marxists here and what Brian Epstein did for the Beatles. <laughs> yep, I, that's, I knew you were going there. <laughs> and that he saw something with raw appeal and tried to repackage it for the masses. You know. Uh. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, join us next time on the Marx Brothers Council podcast with our new co-host, Mr. Jay Hopkins. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, uh, um, <laughs> you're totally right, Bob. Wild men in leather suits, and he put them in nice clothes. And yeah, and he said, we're, we're, we're going to make you non-threatening and get you a bigger audience. Just a thought I had. Hey, and you know, since we're doing this Beatles podcast, <laughs> when Harpo went to Russia in 1933, um, you know, on his way to Russia, he, he went through Hamburg hmm. in Germany. Uh, this is what, a little less than three decades before the Beatles had their formative uh, experiences in Hamburg <laughs> uh, and witnessed, you know, the early signs of uh, persecution of the Jews in Europe. Hmm. Are we saying that Susan Fleming hmm. broke up the act? <laughs> the problem was that after Chico <laughs> fell in love with Astrid. <laughs> so to tie all this up, um, the one record we have of the team from 1934 is a great photo shoot they did cavorting around the MGM lot in mid-November. Um, there are a lot of great shots, including some with Irving Thalberg and uh, there's a great one outside the gates uh, carrying these suitcases. Uh, what, what do they say? Blondes, gags, and wardrobe. Yes. Uh, whether they brought enough gags uh, is certainly debatable. They certainly <laughs> didn't bring any blondes. Uh, but these photos are important for two reasons. First of all, they are the only images we have of the team between the end of Duck Soup in, uh, what is it, the fall of 1933, and the start of production of A Night at the Opera in the spring of 1935. That's basically a year and a half. But more importantly, these are the first team photos done without Zeppo. So, you know, in that context, they are a bit sad. Yes.
So I think that about does it uh, on our talk about 1934. But hang on a second. Uh, we have something very cool we want to talk about. Coming up in a few weeks, our cohort and co-host, Mr. Matthew Coney, will be traveling across the sea to visit the counties for the first time. Yep, Matthew is coming to New York City, and he's bringing along the wife, uh, Angela, and uh, the youngin, Edward, right? Yep, we're all, we're all coming. We're all going to be there. And Angela has graciously allowed us to nab Matthew for a day so we could do a live Marx Brothers Council podcast event. Yep, uh, we're going to be at a place near Rockefeller Center, and we're going to have a live audience. Uh, we can't just open it to the public. You can't just walk in. You're going to have to RSVP. We have a, a few spots available as we're recording this. Uh, you can find the information on our uh, Facebook page, or if you don't like, uh, if you're not a fan of Mr. Zuckerberg's work, you could email us at marksbrotherscouncilpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll get you the info. But uh, it is going to be very cool. Uh, we're going to sit and do a, an episode. We're going to talk about a subject. We'll probably take some questions from uh, from the gathered crowd or from the two people who show up. And uh, anything else? It will be followed by um, a, a chance to socialize, um, meet Matthew in person, have him sign your books. And hopefully Mr. Diamond will uh, show us some of the sites, some of the Marxian sites. Yes, that will be followed by some Marxian jaunt around Manhattan, uh, in which case, if if properly begged, I will point out some uh, important Marx Brothers locations around the island. And we'll be blind for three days. <laughs> <laughs> so this promises to be exciting or a total disaster, but we'll, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, before we go, I want to again mention our blog site that we're always referring to. It's simply MarxBrothersCouncilPodcast.com. Uh, you'll find uh, all the notes and photos and videos that we refer to. You'll see a place where you can leave comments on each episode. Uh, you'll even see a place where the three of us individually rank the Marx films from top to bottom or bottom to top, uh, depending on where you put Go West. So please check it out. It is very, very, very cool. So uh, that's going to about do it. Uh, wait, before we go, uh, Noah, why don't you tell everybody about your book? Uh, about my, uh, about uh, Give Me a Thrill, you're, you're, you're saying? If that's what you want to push. Well, <laughs> well, I am the author of Give Me a Thrill, the book about, uh, I'll say she is, the original production and my revival. My most recent book is called 400 Years in Manhattan, and it's about the history of the city we will all be meeting up in next month. Now, Matthew, how about you? I'm the author of The Annotated Marx Brothers, and that's me, Groucho, the solo career of Groucho Marx, and you can purchase them from Dirty Bob's Erotic Emporium <laughs> in uh, Soho. You just have to go downstairs uh, through the door at the back uh, and ask for Derek, and he should be able to give you a copy. And since I have not written a book, I am going to have to dig into the archives and pull out the great Richard J. Nobley book, uh, Open Marriage, which you can find on Amazon. <laughs> so look for that one. And, and there goes any possibility of getting him on as a guest. <laughs> <laughs> so that's going to do it for this time. We will see you on the Facebook group, and we'll see some of you live in a few weeks, and we'll see the rest of you back here next time on the Marx Brothers Council podcast. Now, to introduce our copyright infringing closing recording, here's Noah Diamond. Oh, this is a good one, folks. This is a good one. I grew up sitting on the back porch with my granddaddy just playing and hearing this over and over again. And every time I hear it, I get a little stomachache. Well, welcome. Welcome for the DeSoto Plymouth Dealers. Say the secret word and divide a hundred dollars. It's a common word, something you see every day. Miss, uh, Mrs. Yvonne, uh, Yvonne Weber and Mr. William McBride, eh? Mr. McBride, I'll, I'll call you Mac, huh? Save Everybody calls me Mac. In other words, Mac is Jake with you, is that all right? That's right. Well, tell me, Jake, where are you from? <laughs> <laughs> now, you're supposed to have an unusual occupation. What is it, Mac? I sell clothing in Alaska. You do, huh? Yes, sir. Well, I guess they need it up there, eh? 
Well, tell us about your job. Who buys your clothes in Alaska? Well, I sell most pro I professional... I thought everybody was bare up there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I sell most professional men in Alaska. In fact, men in all walks of life. Uh -huh. I sell them the world's finest clothes, tailored by Richard McIntosh of Hollywood. Mm -hmm. In fact, most Alaskans have you a dozen... You the address. <laughs> didn't I say Richard McIntosh in Hollywood? Yeah, but you didn't give the street address. No? Oh, I'm sorry. Hollywood Boulevard. Yeah. You don't know the number, huh? Are you allowed to advertise? Oh, sure. We, we enjoy it. We don't want to discuss the DeSoto here. We're no, willing to... What we like to do is try to... 12 Hollywood Boulevard. Oh, good. That's good. Thank what we you. try to do is sell other products here, you see. Because the sponsor gets real angry if we mention his product. How old are you, Mac? I'm 52. Well, you don't look it. Thank you. Look about 38. Mrs. Weber, I'll just call you Ivan, eh? That's right. Where is your home? I live in Los Angeles, California. Do you mind if I ask you a personal question? No, go right ahead. You don't know what the question is. <laughs> it's not the question you think it is that I'm going to ask you. I'm just going to ask you how old you are. I'm 30. 30, eh? mm -hmm. You don't look it. You don't look a day over 25. You say you're married, eh? That's right. What does your husband do for a living? He's a thread booker for Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company. He's a what? A thread booker. Well, give him my congratulations. What is a thread broker? I don't know. <laughs> don't you know what your husband does? Uh, what does he tell you? Nothing. He, keep, he keeps away from my pots and pans, and I keep away from his tires. <laughs> Well, uh, that's very shrewd, especially if you don't want to get run over. <laughs> Are you handy around the kitchen, Yvonne? Oh, I think I am. What kind of dishes do you like to prepare? Oh, I love to prepare tacos, enchiladas, tamales, frijoles. Mm, they're wonderful. What is tacos? Oh, tacos is a delicious tortilla that you put lots of beans and olives, meat, and you fold it and you eat it. Oh, it's wonderful. Then you eat and then you fold, is that it? <laughs> well, your uh, husband is a lucky man to have someone who can prepare all those tasty Mexican dishes. Uh, what is his favorite dish? Sour broughton. 